Good afternoon, Tri-States. You are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. This is Ken in my Friday Reader Seat reading from the first Friday in March, March 3rd edition of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. And we are brought to you in part by DuPaco and the R.W. Hafer Foundation. Now we begin with our first piece from above the fold. Aldi's plans a store at Plaza 20. Aldi intends to construct a grocery store in Plaza 20 on a parcel located just east of Starbucks on Dodge Street, according to a building permit application submitted to the city of Dubuque this week by a contractor. That document indicates the property is owned by Aldi. Repeated calls to Aldi this week seeking comment were not returned, and Sarah Hutchinson, vice president of Plaza 20, Inc., declined to provide any further information on the development. The 2.1-acre parcel that will be the site for the planned store stretches from the Starbucks to Sonic Properties. The parcel includes the property that previously featured a building, now demolished, that housed FET Accounting and Tax Services, and the property currently occupied by Subway, which has announced plans to move to a new building in Plaza 20. The Germany-based grocer has more than 2,000 U.S. stores, including at 2160 Holiday Drive in Dubuque. The company markets itself as a no-frills, low-price alternative to other grocery store competitors. The building permit application for the new store submitted by MS Consultants of Columbus, Ohio, puts the total valuation of the Plaza 20 project at $1.7 million, and the site plan submitted to the city states the completed store will cover 20,664 square feet contain three e-commerce parking spots, and set aside a portion of the property for future expansion. Online property records indicate the Holiday Drive Aldi spans about 17,900 square feet. The building permit application does not state when construction of the store is expected to begin. Officials with Aldi and Plaza 20 this week moved to secure approval in relation to elements of the project. Online property records show that Plaza 20, Inc. purchased the 2.1-acre parcel from RBS Real Estate, LLC, for $1.05 million in November. Dubuque Zoning Advisory Commission members approved a request by Aldi, Inc. and Plaza 20, Inc. to waive a city site design standard related to landscape buffer yard requirements for the project. During the commission meeting, officials did not refer to the project as being an Aldi grocery store specifically. Mark Seidel, project manager and associate at Pinnacle Engineering Group, who was speaking on behalf of Aldi, Inc. and Plaza 20, Inc., referred to the planned retailer as a national grocer. Zoning Advisory Commission members also voted on Wednesday to recommend approval of a request by Plaza 20, Inc. to amend the zoning boundary of Plaza 20 and to increase the property's freestanding sign allowance. 
That recommendation will be considered by Dubuque City Council members at their March 20 meeting. In the staff report for the proposed zoning amendment, city staff stated the changes are being proposed because the property will soon be home to a new general retailer. This week, Plaza 20 Inc. issued a press release stating it is negotiating with a national retailer to occupy the former Subway site. The deal is not yet finalized. Meanwhile, Subway will open a new location next to Harbor Freight Tools. Plaza 20 Inc. obtained a building permit last month for a $500,000 project that involves constructing a new building for Subway. The 1,800-square-foot restaurant, anticipated to open in late April or early May, will feature an outdoor seating and drive through service. Jessica Glassbrenner is a co-owner of RBS Subway, Inc., which owns and operates all Subway restaurants in Dubuque. It's going to be nice because it's a brand new building and will be much more accessible, she said. We want to give many different options to our customers. With the addition of the drive through service, Glassbrenner said her company intends to hire one or two additional service members. Our next front page piece, GOP advances bills aiming to ease workforce struggles in Iowa. Iowa Republicans advanced numerous bills intended to improve workforce development ahead of today's funnel deadline, though some lawmakers say numerous social policy bills being considered could exacerbate workforce shortages. Bills to change aspects of Iowa code regulating the work minors can do advanced out of Iowa House of Representatives and Senate committees this week, the last week this session for bills to advance out of their first committees. While Republicans and supporters refer to the bills as youth workforce bills, opponents are calling them child labor and staged a large protest this week. Changes proposed in the House bill include allowing teens who are 14 or 15 to work until 9 p.m. during the school year and 11 p.m. in the summer, later than curfew law allows, allowing those with school driving permits also to drive to and from work and allowing teens 14 and older to serve alcohol to patrons at bars and restaurants. Iowa Representative Shannon Lundgren Republican Piasta chairs the House Commerce Committee, which advanced the bill. She told the Telegraph Herald the bill could help both workforce and youth. We've got kids who don't participate in any other activities, she said. They are eager to get out there and earn their own money. It will be good for workforce, especially them being able to learn at work while still attending school because not everybody is going to go to a four-year college. Opponents on the committee argued that the bill reversed protections that have kept children out of dangerous work conditions, such as the potential for injuries in meat coolers or sexual assault from drinking patrons. Lundgren rejected those claims during a committee meeting this week. One of the benefits to allowing some of the changes is If you are a family business, as mine is, you can rely on help from family, she said. I think this is a good bill. I think it does still need some work. I, too, would have concern about some of the bars in my district, and the cops know which they are, and putting a 16-year-old to work there. 
to paint one side as not caring about these issues is unfair. The Senate Commerce Committee also advanced its version of the bill along party lines this week. Iowa Senator Pam Yoakum, Democrat Dubuque, participated in a protest against the bills alongside members of unions from across the state, including Dubuque. Yoakum said the bill was informed by the same philosophy she thinks most Republican workforce approaches use and which she disagrees with. The answer from the Republican majority every time seems to be, let's lower the standards and lower the qualifications needed, she said. Other bills aimed at improving workforce were less contentious. The Senate Commerce Committee unanimously advanced a bill to allow immigrant physicians' medical degrees from certain countries to qualify them to practice in Iowa. Iowa Senator Carrie Colker, Republican Dyersville, supported that bill. The Commerce Committee did some international physician regulation change, which is a good workforce bill, especially for rural Iowa, and will help with that profession, she said. Other workforce bills advanced this week related to education. Iowa Representative Steve Bradley, Republican Cascade, voted in favor of a bill in subcommittee to require school administrators to teach some classes, which supporters said could alleviate workforce strain in education. He was unavailable for comment Thursday. Democrats, however, repeatedly have said attempts to chip away at workforce shortages with these bills would be overshadowed or reversed by the socially conservative stance taken in other bills that would impact LGBTQ plus residents. Bills being considered include those that would bar transgender people from using school bathrooms for their identified gender and ban the teaching of gender identity from health education for elementary school students. I hear from Iowans all the time who are considering leaving the state, who are looking for work elsewhere because of the radical right turn this body has taken, said Iowa Representative Lindsey James, Democrat Dubuque. Supporters of the school bills say they aim to protect parental choice and privacy in the classroom. Yoakum said she has heard employers questioning plans to move to the state due to socially conservative legislation they see as unwelcoming to the LGBTQ plus people and other groups. Democrats weren't the only ones voicing the same concern. Colker said she was upset by a bill introduced by a group of House Republicans to amend the Iowa Constitution to ban same-sex marriage, among other legislation. A lot of these bills that have been filed do impact the national view of Iowa, she said. It's unfortunate. I'm not in support of a lot of the anti-bills I've seen in the House. Some of the same bills have matching legislation in the Senate, but Colker said she doubted the most controversial would have the support there that they need to become law. Our third piece has ahead of it this amazing picture of a guinea fowl puffer fish. It's a, it's a beautiful blue color covered in white dots, staring right out at the page, 
and its mouth almost looks like it's smiling at us. Well, it's swimming at the new Rivers to the Sea exhibit at the National Museum, River Museum and Aquarium in Dubuque, and it will open to the public today. And our article is Museum to Take Visitors from Rivers to the Sea. Visitors to a Dubuque museum soon can have a personal interactive experience with an octopus. I call it shaking hands with an octopus, said Kurt Strand, president and CEO of Dubuque County Historical Society and its signature property, National Mississippi River Museum and Aquarium. The museum's latest exhibit space, Rivers to the Sea, will open today in the River Discovery Center, the easternmost building of the facility's Port of Dubuque campus. Work on the exhibit began in September. On Thursday, staff put the finishing touches on aquariums and other exhibit pieces, while some of the 45 new species on display debuted in their new homes. Located behind the new aquarium home of an octopus is a behind-the-scenes area where museum staff feed and otherwise care for creatures on display. Soon, the museum will offer a premium experience for guests using that location. We are going to build steps and a rail in the space so we can bring people back to interact with the octopus, said Maya Davidson, the museum's assistant curator of living collections. It will be for an additional charge, like a VIP tour. Guests will be able to come back here and get up close and personal with the octopus. It's really a once-in-a-lifetime experience for people, and it's a form of enrichment for the animal, too, because the octopus is really intelligent and curious. Davidson said that interaction could include touching the octopus if the octopus is so inclined. It depends on the personality of the octopus, she said. Some really enjoy interaction with people. The octopus experience could debut in about a month at the museum. Beginning today, visitors will experience the other results of the approximately six-month, $2 million renovation to the exhibit area, which includes newly acquired species and special education displays, highlighting conservation and the role of Dubuque in the health of the globe's oceans. A drop of water in Dubuque can travel anywhere in the world, Strand said. This exhibit tells of Dubuque's connection to the world and the world's connection to Dubuque. Exhibit visitors enter the renovated space and first encounter a model of an outrigger canoe, a gift from Dubuque's Marshallese community that Strand said combines with other exhibit elements to explain the local connection with the people who originated in the Pacific region. You see the Marshallese outrigger and a mural about the Marshall Islands, and there is a fish tank over there with fish from the South Pacific, Strand said. As the Dubuque County Historical Society, we want to make sure we're talking about our community and letting residents learn about others in the community. Wall and floor colors change as visitors make their way through the exhibit. The colors denote geographically themed areas devoted to the South Pacific Ocean, the Gulf of Mexico, the North Atlantic Ocean, and the Gulf of California. 
Each has sea creatures native to that area, as well as a tank devoted to lionfish, an invasive species creating issues with indigenous creatures in the Gulf of Mexico. A large gulf aquarium is a remnant of part of the River Discovery Center prior to renovation. In its current iteration, it is surrounded by murals by artist Adam Einkamp that suggest the outside as well as the inner workings of an ocean-based oil rig. We can tell the conservation story of oil rigs, Strand said. Oil rigs provide safe habitat for many fish and animals, but they also can leak and spill and cause environmental issues. Quarter-sized jellyfish, called moon jellies, float throughout one of the 12 new aquariums in the exhibit. The moon jellies are amazing, Strand said. I got to see them fed shrimp a couple of days ago. They float, the shrimp float, and all of a sudden you see the shrimp inside of the jelly. It's really amazing. A nearby tide pool touch tank enables visitors to touch sea stars and other creatures based close to the shore. We will have an educator back here interpreting, Strand said. A quelp, excuse me, a kelp aquarium has a half dome bubble in the middle. Visitors can crawl into an opening of the tank's housing and rise up into the bubble, which is surrounded by fish swimming inside of the tank giving visitors a feeling of existing among the swaying strands of kelp. There are just so many stories we can tell with these new aquariums, Strand said. The animal collections team is really going to be front and center, interacting with visitors. We have an organization of experts who can share their knowledge with others. Our staff can explain the ocean's stories to everyday people at a level that I and others can understand. Now we turn to some of our news from the Dubuque and Tri-State area. And our lead piece from Galena, Joe Davies County Courthouse to undergo renovation. The Joe Davies County Courthouse is slated for an approximately $16 million renovation. County board members recently voted to approve moving forward with updates to the courthouse, which was constructed in the 1830s and is located at 330 North Bench Street in Galena. The last time any type of renovation was done was in 1996 when they added an elevator shaft, said County Administrator Scott Toot, noting that the building also had three previous upgrades over the course of the 20th century. Board Chair LaDon Trost said the exterior of the courthouse largely will remain unchanged, apart from an addition to the side of the building, but the interior will be completely redone to bring the facility into the 21st century. It's a beautiful old building that has so much space that can be utilized and put to good use if it was completely renovated, but as it sits today, it is totally out of date, he said. Toot said the first and second floors of the facility will be completely reconfigured to make the best use of available space. The first floor currently houses offices for the county administrator, clerk, recorder, and treasurer, as well as county staff in departments such as geographic information systems and information technology. 
while the second floor includes courtrooms and offices for the county state's attorney, clerk of court, and public defender. Toot said a proposal from architecture and engineering firm Shrive Hattery placed the approximate cost of a full courthouse renovation between $15.35 million and $16.75 million. Architects also previously presented the board with an option to construct an entirely new courthouse, which Trost said was estimated to cost somewhere around $25 million, not including land acquisition and parking lot construction costs. According to Trost, funding such a project likely would have required the passage of a bond measure that would have increased residents' taxes, something the board wanted to avoid. We want to make sure that what we do, we can do without adding more taxes to help with the cost of any renovations or rebuilding, he said. The county received about $4 million in American Rescue Plan Act funds, which officials plan to put toward the courthouse renovation. Toot said county staff and board members still are discussing options for financing the project, as well as a timeline for construction but he emphasized that residents should not see an increase in their taxes. There's no plan to increase taxes or request an increase in taxes through a referendum regarding this project, he said. Our next piece comes from Menominee, and first we have a large inset picture of a couple standing inside of um, their tap, their, their restaurant, bar room, And the caption reads, Karen and Jerry Meyer own J.M.'s Tap in Menominee, Illinois, and will retire after 40 years in business. And our article reads, After four decades, the longtime owners of an area tavern will close their chapter on the business this spring. J.M.'s Tap will mark 40 years in the Menominee community in May, which is also when owners Jerry and Karen Meyer will retire. The couple plan to close the tavern May 1st, though the two also hope to sell the business. It's just time, Jerry said. We have no regrets, but 40 years is a long time. What would become J.M.'s Tap initially opened in September 1948 as Rundy's Tap and Grocery, which was run by Karen's parents, Dick and Eloise Rundy. Karen's family lived above the business, which became a bar only in 1969. There were nine of us siblings, and all of us worked there starting when we were about 12, she said. My parents worked hard, but they had fun. This has always been a family place. The building sustained heavy smoke and water damage in a fire in 1979. The tavern closed until 1983, when Jerry and Karen reopened it as J.M.'s Tap. Three years after taking over, the Myers added food to the tavern's menu. Karen said their pizzas, especially the BLT pizza, became well-known, and the business also hosts popular Friday fish fries. (coughs) The Myers raised their four children above the bar as well. All of their children, as well as other family members, worked at the tavern over the years. They were always in a big hurry to clean up at the end of the night so they could sit down here and play euchre, Jerry said. 
Jerry and Karen's daughter, Emily Dohmeyer, said she and her siblings used to fall asleep listening to the sound of the jukebox downstairs. We'd laugh that when we went to college, we'd have no problem falling asleep since we were used to hearing people partying at night, she said. The business also hosted various events to bring people to the bar over the years, including euchre tournaments, Jerry said. The couple also started an annual rabbit hunt, which Jerry said draws 170 hunters who pack the bar. It's our biggest day of the year, he said. People love that. You've got to come up with unique ideas to bring people in. This is a destination place. The Myers also have focused on supporting their community. Dohmeyer said her parents sponsored countless youth sports teams and frequently donated money to booster clubs. I'll never forget one time a family came in with two sons with cancer, she said. We made them a pizza, and my dad threw a $100 bill in the pizza box to help them out with their expenses. They were always willing to help, always willing to put an arm out for everybody. Jerry and Karen stressed their appreciation for everyone who has supported JM's Tap over the years, especially during the 101 days the tavern only offered carryout due to the COVID-19 pandemic. We've made so many friends over the years, Jerry said. I wish I wrote a book or took notes. We've met so many interesting people. The Meyer's son, Adam Meyer, wrote in an email that he and his siblings admire their parents' dedication to the community over the years. Their decision to close after a successful 40 years is the right decision, and we are very proud of them, he wrote. But naturally, this will provide a gaping hole in the hearts of the people of Menominee and the surrounding area. Now we turn to the opinion page and we have our view, the quick takes that are presented by the Dubuque editorial board and represent their opinion. And we have a scrunchy face and a couple of smiley faces. We'll start out with the scrunchy face. People in need needs support. In the Dubuque community, multiple organizations make up the safety net intended to help people from falling through the cracks in different difficult times. But keeping the safety net intact takes help from the community. One of those providers needs that help now. Leaders of People in Need, a local nonprofit providing rent and utility assistance, say they soon will exhaust their funds amid a growing demand for aid. The volunteer-run aid agency had only $8,834 left in its checking account recently amid historically high demand for its services. Local churches and social service agencies refer prospective clients to people in need for a variety of financial needs, principally unpaid rent and utility costs, but also expenses such as outstanding medical debts. The number of requests and the amount paid out by the agency has grown steadily over the past several years. Per the nonprofit's annual report, people in need assisted 109 households in 2022, 56% more than in 2021, and issued $61,511 in assistance, 64% more than the year before. 
Here's a chance for the community to step up and support this nonprofit that has supported so many others over the years. Reach out to People in Need at peopleinneed7995 at gmail.com or send donations to People in Need, Westminster Presbyterian Church, 2155 University Avenue, Dubuque, Iowa, 52001. Help keep Dubuque's safety net strong. Our second piece, a smiley face. A nod to City of Dubuque officials for pursuing a secondary responder model to address homelessness in the community. City of Dubuque officials are moving forward with an effort to help first responders better assist residents in crisis. City council members recently voted unanimously to explore establishing partnerships with local organizations that can assist with the program and to seek grants to fund full-time critical incident team officer positions. Police Chief Jeremy Jensen presented to council members the proposed structure of the city's secondary responder model, which would prioritize providing on-site and referral services for people experiencing a crisis, such as homelessness or mental health issues. This is an idea first raised in tandem with an ordinance change in September regarding camping and inoperable vehicles to help address the city's issues with homelessness. City officials agreed at the time that while the move gave police an enforcement option to move people along, it did not address the underlying issue of the increase in homelessness. While we would have liked to see the secondary responder piece put into motion at the same time as the ordinance, it's great to see implementation of the idea moving forward. Now, let's continue to move purposefully to get this fully in place. And our third piece is also a smiley face. There are service agencies that have filled needs in the community for so long that no one can imagine life in Dubuque without them. Dubuque Rescue Mission is one such agency. It has served meals and housed men faced with housing insecurity for more than nine decades. For the past 16 years, that good work has been led by Rick Mim, who announced this week his plan to retire this summer. Like the compassionate man of faith he has always been, Mim vows to continue to serve the mission. He will put in hours at the new drop-in center at 1598 Jackson Street when it opens and help out more in the rescue mission kitchen. He still will invite rescue mission residents out to his farm in the warmer months. Under Mim's leadership, the role of the mission expanded dramatically, adding a greenhouse and vegetable gardens out back several units of transitional housing, a second thrift store focused on furniture, and a mobile food pantry piloted last year. The staff of five has grown to 27. Through growth, change, a pandemic, and other times of great need, Mim was a steady, hard hand and a caring heart. A big thank you to Rick Mim for his years of dedication On the shoulders of facilities like the Mission, Dubuque is able to care for its most vulnerable citizens. You are listening to Iris 
the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. And this is Ken reading from the Friday, March 3rd edition of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. And now we continue with some letters to the editor. Our first one. More research needed on female athletes' injuries. Olivia Hilby, Wintergreen Drive, Asbury. Being sidelined with an anterior cruciate ligament injury is one of the worst feelings an athlete can experience, and unfortunately, it's a reality for many women in sports. Female athletes are two to eight times more likely to suffer an anterior cruciate ligament ACL tear than male athletes. This problem heightens as women's sports leagues start to gain more popularity. Injuries involving the ACL account for 37% of knee injuries in the WNBA, a number that is continuously increasing. Even off the big stage of professional sports, thousands of female high school athletes experience the devastation of this injury annually. The pain of sitting on the bench during a critical season might hurt more than the actual injury for many. The answer to this ill-fated problem? More research and treatment into the female body, especially for athletes. Most information and care concerning ACLs are based on men's bodies. Women tend to get lumped into this research without consideration for their differences between the female and male bodies like hormonal schedules, body shapes, and the menstrual cycle. For instance, women's hips are wider than men's, putting more stress on soft tissue in the leg joints, leading to more ankle and knee injuries. Women are inherently different from men, creating a gap in which female athletes' health lies. It's hard to sit and watch as female athletes suffer from lack of research because of a world molded for men. Let's do better. Our next piece, More Must Be Done to Impact Insulin Costs. Madeline Moore, Sunset Ridge, Dubuque. Diabetes on Medicare, or diabetics, excuse me, on Medicare, appreciate the Inflation Reduction Act, which capped insulin prices for anyone 65 or older at $35 per month in 2023. Although this is a step forward, more must be done. The retail price has greatly surged, and people with little or no insurance have to pay close to $1,000 per month. As a type 1 diabetic, I have a close relationship with this issue. Although my parents' insurance covers most of my insulin and pods, such as Omnipod and Dexcom G6, when I turn 26, I will then have to pay for insulin, which may or may not be covered by insurance. This issue not only affects diabetics, but the people around them as well. About 10,000 diabetics die in the U.S. each year from lack of insulin because of the choices they must make between buying life-sustaining medicine or using the money for other necessities. I propose a few ways we can improve insulin access and affordability by increasing pricing transparency around the insulin supply chain and lowering and removing patient cost sharing for insulin, we may be able to make insulin more affordable for people struggling without it. 
Low or no cost sharing has been shown to increase medication adherence and better results long term. Cost sharing is the share of costs covered by your insurance that you pay out of your own pocket. The ADA recommends increasing full transparency throughout the supply chain to help determine what factors are contributing to the high prices. Our third one, Iowa Republicans Ready for 2024 Caucus, John Dara, Chicory Street, Dubuque. I serve as chair of the Dubuque County Republican Central Committee. This relates to the February 18th article by Benjamin Fisher regarding 2022 election results. We thank voters for progress made in 2022, as our great conservative candidates successfully flipped three county seats held by Democrats for many years, attorney, treasurer, and supervisor. County races have become more competitive in recent years, which has helped encourage qualified Republicans to run for offices that in past elections found Democrats running unopposed. Many county residents that were raised as Democrats have come to see that the National Democratic Party no longer represents them. The far left has hijacked the National Party and promotes an agenda of big government control and dependency. Democrat policies support abortion, open borders, mandates and lockdowns, defunding the police, restriction of Second Amendment rights, political weaponization of federal agencies, indoctrination of kids to the cancer of wokeness and revisionist history, injection of race into every issue, and devastating inflation, just to name a few. (laughs) Regarding upcoming Iowa caucuses, it appears the Democratic Party has decided to bypass Iowa as its first contested state, as they know we have rejected their leftist agenda. Further, in 2020, the Iowa Democratic Party was unable to conduct the caucus and report results in an accurate and timely manner. Dubuque County Republicans will efficiently organize our caucus, welcome any candidates, and enthusiastically support the eventual nominee. We warmly welcome those who reject the destructive Democratic agenda. And our next one. City utility monitoring goes too far. Terry Duggan, Beacon Hill Drive, Dubuque. Wow, another week and another loony idea from city staff and the city manager. They now want to be able to monitor my electric usage at my business. Why? So you can then tell me I need to limit my usage? Tax me for what you believe is my excess use? Spoiler alert. I am constantly trying to find ways to trim my utility costs now. How else can I keep paying for my property taxes being raised each year and my water utility bill that has doubled over the last 20 years? I have one answer for you wanting to know how much electricity I use. None of your business. Leave me and all the other business owners and citizens of this city alone. From water usage to watching us drive, to speed monitoring, and the list goes on. Stop. And one more. Drivers should follow posted speed limit. Lloyd White, West 6th Street, Dubuque. I am following with interest the controversial speed camera issue. 
I think the acceptable solution would be drivers to obey the posted speed limits and pedestrians obey the traffic lights. If those are obeyed, then all should work out, and hopefully nobody would get injured. If somebody is run over, that is where paramedics enter the equation. Then pray to the Lord for safety. We now turn to today's obituaries. Lynn I. Montgomery. Lynn I. Montgomery, 83, of Benton, Wisconsin, passed away Monday, February 27th. Funeral services will be held at 11 a.m. Monday, March 6th, at United Methodist Church, Benton, Wisconsin, with Pastor Ed Santiago officiating. Burial will be in the church cemetery. Family and friends may call from 9 to 10.45 a.m. Monday at the church prior to the service. Casey McNett Funeral Home and Cremation Services is assisting the family. Lynn was born on December 10, 1939, in Chicago, the daughter of William H. and Lillian R. Noel Bradley. She was united in marriage to Glenn Montgomery on October 11, 1958, in McHenry, Illinois. He preceded her in death on May 22, 2006. Lynn was a loving and devoted wife and mother. She worked for many years farming with her husband. Their dream was to own a farm in Wisconsin, so in 1973 they purchased the farm in Benton. Lynn farmed until Glenn retired. After taking CNA courses, she worked at Manor Care in Platteville for 15 years. She was a member of the United Methodist Church in Benton for many years. She taught religion, was a member of the board, and assisted at the funeral dinners. Lynn was also a member of the Red Hat Society. She loved to bowl, play horseshoes, swim, and spend time with her family and friends. In lieu of flowers, a Lynn I. Montgomery Memorial Fund has been established. Memorials may be sent to the funeral home at 123 North Jackson Street, Cuba City, Wisconsin, 53807. Online condolences for the family may be left at www.caseymcnett.com. Joseph H. Pocket. Joseph H. Pocket, 42, of Dubuque, died Wednesday, March 1st. Private services will be held. Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road, is assisting the family. Gerald E. Dillon, Raleigh, North Carolina. Gerald E. Dillon, 70, of Raleigh and formerly of Dubuque, died Monday, February 27, 2023. Private services were held. Gerald J. Brown, Piasta. Gerald J. Brown, 71, of Piasta, died Wednesday, March 1st. Visitation will be held from 3.30 to 8 p.m. Monday, March 6th, at Rife Funeral Home in Piasta, where services will be held at 10.30 a.m. Tuesday, March 7th. Burial will be in Dubuque Memorial Gardens in Key West. David F. Kleiner, Cuba City. David F. Kleiner, 78, of Cuba City, died Thursday, March 2nd. No services will be held. Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road, is assisting the family. We have sadness with the passings of those we know, 
but we have joy with our new arrivals, and we have a few to report. Tuesday, February 28th, Stearman Fuller. Tyler Stearman and Ashley Fuller of Dubuque, a girl at Unity Point Health Finley Hospital, Dubuque. Wednesday, March 1st, Ehrensdorf, Casey and Melanie Ehrensdorf of Dubuque, a girl at Mercy One Dubuque Medical Center. Halpert, Alexis Halpert of Dubuque, a boy at Finley. Thursday, March 2nd, Schemmel, Mark and Chandler Schemmel of Galena, a girl at Mercy One. Welcome aboard, little ones. May life bring you smiles and some joy. We have one piece of news in brief on, on this page before we go find the rest, and this one is uh, two hurt in a two-vehicle crash outside of Galena. Two people were injured in a two-vehicle crash Wednesday near Galena. Megan Schroeder, 22, of Belmont, Wisconsin, and passenger Aaron Roll, 29, of Hanover, were taken by ambulance to Dubuque Hospitals for treatment, according to the Joe Davies County Sheriff's Department. The crash occurred at about 9.30 a.m. Wednesday on Illinois 84, approximately one mile north of West Council Hill Road. A press release states that Schroeder was driving south when her vehicle crossed into the northbound lane and struck a vehicle driven north by Thomas Kramer, 62, of Dubuque. Kramer was released from the scene after being evaluated by EMS. Authorities are investigating the crash. I found this one, Stories from a Small Town. It looks interesting for all of us. Small town relationships have a big impact, and our writer is Steve Ortman. He's a copy editor. I grew up in a small town. Q. John Cougar Mellencamp. Is he still Cougar? Doesn't matter. He'll always be Cougar to me. Living most of my young life in Elkader, Iowa, a quaint town in Clayton County of just more than 1,400 during my years there, but down to around 1,200 today, gave me memories and stories to last a lifetime. I always have thought about writing a book, but then I got married and had a kid, and there went a lot of my free time. For the better, of course, you get my point. I am busier these days. But what growing up in Elkader really left me was with a special group of lifelong friends. We chat daily on messengers and get together numerous times per year. Even when we are apart for an extended period and finally reconnect, it is like no time has passed. My developing dad abs typically are sore from hours of uproarious laughter. Those relationships were forged through our time together whether it was playing sports, goofing off in the classroom, or crashing, crashing in each other's houses overnight, even on school nights. These are friends that I consider brothers. I don't technically have any brothers, so these unsavory cretins will have to do. Because when you are growing up in a small town, you rely on family and friends. My parents got divorced as I was entering the eighth grade, so I perhaps leaned on my friends more than most. I related with friends who had remarkable role model parents, but also naturally connected with fellow friends who had gone through a broken home. As you could imagine, some of these stories are too much to retell in these pages. Those will live on in my heart for now, unless I ever get around to writing that book. Small town living with no cell phones and limited internet access certainly was productive for our imaginations. We sure did our share of stupid stuff. Man, 
I really wanted to use another word there. We've all grown up, I use that term loosely, and have our jobs, our families, our new lives in different towns, cities, or even states. But we have that bond, and we always will. We have been through so much together, and in some ways, I think then there is a small part of each of us that's still 16, carefree, figuring things out as we go. So while writing a book is probably out of the cards, I figured I could find time to devote to a column on my years growing up in Al-Qaeda. I graduated from Central High School in 2003. Our 20-year class reunion is this summer. Just wow. And I have lived mostly in Dubuque ever since. Growing up in a small town made me the person I am today. There are a lot of stories to tell from that journey, and hopefully you will take the ride along with me. It might have been hard a time or two, but it sure was a hell of a lot of fun. I found one piece from our tri-states. Bankston family, recognized as Irish Family of the Year. Continuing the St. Patrick Day's tradition, the Matt Daly family of Bankston has been chosen as the ancient order of Hibernians Irish Family of the Year. Matt and Ann Daly made it a priority to instill values of family tradition, service, and patriotism, according to granddaughter Bridget Daly Willem. The Dalys emphasized service to the church, the farming community, neighbors, and the land. Farming has been a big part of our heritage, Willem said, adding it feels like the practice harkens back to their Irish roots. Both Matt and Anne left the world in 2016, eight days apart, and though they made a big impact individually, their greatest gift to the world is the family they created together. And there's a long, long list of of the names. The Irish couple and their six children paid homage to their heritage each St. Patrick's Day with a family meal of corned beef and cabbage. Willem doesn't remember her grandparents attending the parade until they both were retired, since work always took priority. She does remember her grandfather being proud to be a founding member of the Dyersville Ancient Order of Hiberians chapter. Matt's grandfather emigrated from County Cork in the mid-1800s, settling in Bankston. Willem remembers her grandfather telling the story of his grandfather's arrival in America. The ship carrying the daily ancestors planned to come into New York, but for some reason they were rerouted further north. According to family legend, they waited a day and returned to New York Harbor. Willem feels perhaps the delay helped the family learn to roll with it. In a 2016 Telegraph Herald interview, Anne shared what may have been the secret to her success in marriage and child rearing. Family was what life was all about, she said. Matt and Anne wed in 1947 and returned home from California and moved to Uncle Joe Daly's farm. Matt's father was farming a mile down the road on the original homestead, today stewarded by Joe and Donna Daly. Uncle Joe's farm now has become the family homestead, having operated continually as a farm run by Matt and his youngest son, Tim Daly. To Willem, being Irish means you're part of something bigger, not only your family and community, but also Ireland, a mythical and beautiful place. And a couple more pieces of news in brief. Dubuque man pleads guilty to enticing young, a girl younger than 14. 
Trevor N. Sandharry, 27, entered the plea in Iowa District Court of Dubuque County to a charge of enticing a minor. If the plea deal is accepted, a charge of lascivious acts with a child by solicitation would be dismissed. Sandharry's sentencing hearing is set for April 10th. Plea documents state that both prosecutors and Sandharry's attorney can request any sentence at the hearing. Court documents state that Sandharry sent inappropriate and sexual messages under two assumed names on Snapchat to a girl younger than 14 whom he knew. The messages were reported by police in January 2021. Investigators determined that some of the same IP addresses from Sandharry's Snapchat account matched the accounts belonging to the assumed names on the messages sent to the girl. The warrant for Sandharry's arrest was issued February 8, 2022, and he was arrested the following day. Unity Point Health considers combining with New Mexico-based organization. A health system with a hospital in Dubuque will explore forming a health care organization with a New Mexico-based system. Unity Point Health announced that officials have signed a letter of intent exploring the formation with Presbyterian Health Care Services. A press release states that the proposed resulting health care organization would see both systems preserve their trusted brand and continue to deliver care locally while collectively achieving administrative efficiencies under a parent organization. Unity Point Health and Presbyterian combined to serve 4 million patients through more than 40 hospital facilities, including Unity Point Health Finley Hospital. The two systems also operate hundreds of clinics while employing about 40,000 people. The release states that both systems will pursue a period of greater evaluation and exploration of next steps. Any combination of the two systems would require a regulatory approval. Dubuque Woman Wins $30,000 Lottery Prize A Dubuque woman recently won $30,000 prize in a lottery scratch-off game. Joan Backus won one of the top prizes in the $30,000 crossword game, the Iowa Lottery announced Thursday. She bought her winning ticket at Big Ten Mart 3300 Asbury Road. The odds of winning a $30,000 prize on the $3 scratch game are one in about 120000 according to the lottery. And finally, we have our weekend buzz. The noteworthy things to do this weekend. Down here in the Ozarks, it's been pouring rain. I don't know what it's quite like up there in the Dubuque land area. Probably a little colder. But let's see what we got going on. Sky viewing. Today, Swiss Valley Nature Preserve and Nature Center. From 6.30 to 8, the free family-friendly event using telescopes and a portable planetarium will show attendees the changes in the night sky as the seasons change from winter to spring. Spots are limited, so register and check for availability. Call 563-556-6745. Jackson County Conservation Luminary Hike. Today, Prairie Creek Recreation Area, 1215 East Summit Street in Maquoketa. 6.30 to 8 p.m. The self-guided walk will be a one-mile loop lit with luminaria, starting at Prairie Creek Pavilion. A campfire and hot cocoa will be provided at the pavilion. All ages are welcome. Admission is free. Donations are welcome. Registration and information at 563-652-3783. Third Annual Model Railroad Garage Sale. Saturday, 4-H building in Dubuque County Fairgrounds, 9 to 2 p.m. 
9 a.m. to 2 p.m. Model railroad collectors and enthusiasts can come swap and shop for all scale types. Mission is $3 per person. Children 12 and under are free with a paid adult. For information, 563-588-1406. Galena Whiskey Weekend, Saturday, Turner Hall, 115 South Bench Street in Galena. At 5 p.m., more than 175 whiskey offerings will be available for pours. Light hors d'oeuvres will be available and food trucks will be on site. Admission includes a keepsake glass. Tickets to a 1 p.m. session are sold out, but tickets remain available for the 5 p.m. session. Admission is $110. Tickets and more information on this event, galenawhiskeyweekend.com. You have been listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicap. This has been your reader, Ken, in my Friday reader seat down here in the rainy Lake Ozark region of Missouri, reading for you from the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Friday, March the 3rd. Please remember always, it's not just the reading of the newspaper that you can get from Iris. There are so many other programs, so check them out. See what else is out there for your listening ears. Until next week, take care of yourselves, get out, have some fun, no matter what the weather, go do something. Enjoy life. You have only today. Yesterday's gone. Tomorrow's unknown. you got today. Do something. <laughs>